Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again everybody and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher, here in New York City, just like... My guest today, who is a very uh, sought-after guest and someone that has been uh, actually in the news, <laughs> both in the in the poker news and the Twitter news lately, uh, and someone that was the topic of a lot of our conversation last week. And I'm so happy to be bringing you uh, this episode this week because we're going to have a conversation with the man himself, uh, Jonathan Little. He has over $7 million in live earnings and uh, untold fortunes made online on sites, including ACR, although he's not playing on there anymore. Jonathan, welcome back to the program. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So first things first, I want to let everybody know you have a new book out. You are a prolific poker author. That's easy for me to say. And your new book is called Excelling at Tough No Limit Hold'em Games. So why don't we talk about the book first, and then we'll get into the drama that everyone wants to hear. But what is different about this book as opposed to your other works? So this is basically the second in a line of books called Excelling at No Limit Hold'em. The first one was a book where I worked with 18 other poker players and mindset experts. And basically, I asked them to just write 20 or so pages about their area of expertise, and then I did multiple live webinars with most of them where my students could you know, get online and talk with them about really whatever they wanted, but also they got to present on additional topics. So that was a huge success. And I didn't really plan on making anything like that again because it was a lot of work on my end because I had to make the book readable and pretty. <laughs> but um, <laughs> for some reason, I decided to do it again. I, was, I am an advisor for the POCAR backing group, P-O-C-A-R-R.com. And... I realized that they have a lot of very, very high-level content for their backees, and it's behind a you know a private. It isn't a private training site to some extent that only backees have access to. Like, wow, we should probably share some of this with the world. Maybe get in front of people. Maybe find some new backees who resonate with the content. And so, I worked with multiple of their coaches. I believe uh, ten of them, and I had them make make um, content based on whatever their area of expertise was. Again. So, um, for example, we have uh, a guy named Burke Stevens, Draft Danger, who's also a coach on my site, PokerCoaching.com, and his chapter is big. It's like 50 pages long, going through multiple final tables, where he was in a pretty tough middle-stacked scenario where you know you have to be kind of cautious. And he talks about using limping strategies, where you get to play more hands, see more flops, and give yourself a chance to become the chip leader without actually risking your whole stack. And that's that was very beneficial for me. Um, also, another guy, Vlada Stojanovic, he may not be a household name, but he actually won the $10,000 buy-in stadium series about a month ago for $1.5 million. His chapter was on ICM, and I learned a lot from the post-flop ICM sections, discussing how if you're a medium stack against the big stack, you just have to do a ton of checking with almost everything because you really don't want to be all in if there are short stacks at the table. And as the big stack, you should be leading a ton and check-raising a ton and just really blasting players when there's a short stack available at the table who could go broke in the near future because 
the medium sacks and other big sacks just can't do a whole lot about it. But anyway, worked with a lot of world-class players. And for this book, we had John Van Fleet, who's one of the biggest winners in online poker. We had Rob Tenyon, who's won the Sunday Million twice, and a lot of other great players. So check it out. I love it. I learned a lot. At this point, a lot of the projects I make are because I want to learn more about poker. And if I can uh, share that with my students as well, then I'm happy to do it. Yeah, and you've been at it for quite a while, Jonathan. I mean, your success goes back many, many years, uh, almost like one of the original kind of the new wave of poker stars that kind of started around Chris Moneymaker. Uh, and you seem like you're just constantly grinding. You're always playing. You're always coaching. You're always teaching. You're always writing. Do you ever get burned out? Do you ever get tired of the game, or does your love of the game just know no bounds? I certainly get burnt out if I do the same thing for a long period of time. Like every time I'm finishing up a new book, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm never writing a book again because <laughs> uh, I'm over it. You know, like if, if you sit down and you grind out something for a month or two, it's like, all right, I'm ready to do something different. But fortunately, my life is set up such that I have multiple things I can be doing. Like I can be working on my training site or I can be teaching students or I can be writing a book or I can be playing poker. Or I can be playing with my kids, you know, like I have a lot of things that I can do and therefore no day looks the same. It's not like I wake up and go to work every day and do the same thing and then come home. It's very, very different every single day. Yeah. Well, one thing you're not short on is ambition and drive and energy and certainly opinions and uh, certainly uh, recently sharing some of those opinions uh, has led to uh, the big news that Poker Twitter just basically had a field day with. And by the way, thank you so much for doing this show because we were talking a little trash about you here on the podcast, you might say, uh, last week. And then well, so you... last week I thought that you were very fair. I mean, that which is you know kind of hard to find in this world nowadays where people seem to be on a team. Like either you are for Jonathan Little or against him. And if you're just like reasonable, then it's like you know that voice very often does not get heard. And to be fair, I think I thought everything you said about me was reasonable and rational. I mean, I, I didn't feel like you were talking trash. I thought like you were being honest and, and open and fair. And I mean, that's that's exactly what I would like, because certainly I'm not always in the right. And it's good whenever people point that out. Yeah. So, well, thank you for that, by the way. We do really strive to be fair. And, you know, I I like you. So it's hard <laughs> for me to be like against you, but also in reporting what happened. I may uh, have said some things that might be that a lesser man may have taken the wrong way. So I'm very grateful that you didn't. Um, but well, I think a lot of people get in their minds that what they are doing must be the right thing. Because <laughs> why would you be doing it otherwise? Right. And it's important to be self-aware and self-reflective and realize, like, well, for those who don't know, ACR banned me, and. There were a few things they did not like that I said, but one of them was I would make jokes about how it seems like the, the paid ACR pros seem to run kind of hot against me. But I would always make it clear it was a joke, but they did not like the fact that if you take a 10-second snippet of it, I say, oh my gosh, it seems like the pros always spike on me, which you know could be misconstrued as I'm saying the site's rigged, even though I made it very clear multiple times I did not think the site is rigged in my stream when I was playing, because I would sit there and play 16 tables at a time playing the, the highest stakes games on the site. And um, if you take if you take that 10-second snippet, if you're not allowed to say stuff like you think the site's rigged, then, you know, I, I guess I deserve the ban. And I, and I said it often, and I said it frequently, and I thought that was, like, okay to do because um, the guy who banned me, Phil Nagy, often posts on Twitter about how he's going to turn on the doom switch on people, which, you know, I means that, hey, you know, that's a fun thing to joke about. 
unless you know maybe he actually has a doom switch i don't know but um i mean i hear their paid pros talking about oh yeah the site's rigged either one way or the other when they get lucky or when they get unlucky so i thought it was fair game but clearly it was not if you're a player you're not allowed to joke about such a thing especially if it's to a big audience right well from watching the the five or ten second clips that were being posted as evidence of why you you know allegedly deserved your ban uh, it doesn't appear that you are joking but then upon further review if you look at those clips in context as you shared several other examples uh, even using the same clips but using the full version and not just the 10 seconds that feels more like a gotcha uh, it does appear more obvious that you're joking and that it is uh, kind of a running theme that you have and you know to be fair many twitch streamers have a thing that they say a lot or that they that they joke about a lot or you know like in the case of uh killing bird <laughs> uh you know he he always drinks he likes to use certain expressions a lot like i see you in the online streets you know there, there's kind of there's almost like a lingo and i do find that you're not the only streamer in the world who ever said this is rigged kind of the go-to comment clear, though, i lose. don't think it's rigged that's that's the issue is that like you said people took 10 second clips and then clipped out the very next sentence where i say that's obviously a joke and i have a bit of you know dry humor i am not the that, that's the kind of humor i do and a lot of people like it some people apparently don't but if you take any one sentence that anyone says i'm sure you can find something that is that sounds well out of line taken out of context and uh, who, whoever presented this evidence to Phil Nagy did a great job of deceiving him and taking it out of context. Yeah, no, that's true. Now, what about Phil himself? Like, he apparently, he claims that he watched, he tuned into your stream and and saw what you were saying and didn't like it. And, okay, so first question, there's so much to unpack here, but the first question is, do you have a problem with Phil's decision to to ban you from playing on his site? No, I think if you own a private company, you can do whatever you want. So I have no problem with being banned from any site for any reason. I'm sure it's, I mean, I haven't read their terms and conditions, but I'm sure it's in the terms and conditions that they can ban you for any reason. If their reason is they don't like Jonathan Little, they can ban me. And they're not regulated anyway, so. <laughs> even if they were, if they're still a private company, they or even a public company. I mean, you can do whatever you want, right? And right. I have no problem with that. Right. And if, if that's the case, I mean, just make sure people know that that's the precedent. If we don't like you, we're going to ban you. Yeah. And if we don't like that you joke about us, we're going to ban you. Or if you even say it seriously, if you say our site's rigged to many thousands of people watching that we think your site's rigged, seriously, we're going to ban you. And that's okay, right? Right. So now now people know the rules. It's very nice when the rules are clear so that you know not to break the rules if you still want to be able to play on the site. Sure. And maybe when you were making those comments, those rules weren't clear. But you must have always known that there was some chance of repercussions if you if you make this if you make certain comments right i actually had no idea that you could not say anything that their own streamers are not saying and it be considered out of line because you're not one of their own streamers or their ceo but you know lesson learned right right yeah i guess so yeah look, if, i mean look I, i'm clearly playing on the site over every other site and to be fair i didn't really even play on any site that caters to American players before COVID happened. And I realized, look, I'm not really playing a ton of poker. My students have always been asking me to stream and I just never did it because I would only play when I'd go overseas and I would just make a point to play as many tables as I can. And you know, I'm usually just on a laptop and it's not a great streaming setup. 
But so I just said, fine, I'll start streaming on Sundays. And it's not like I was playing to try to make a living or anything. And I was doing it for the Vans. And, um, you know, I, there, there are plenty of other places that will let me play. So it's not like this is a horribly bad thing where now I'm going to be out of making a living. And that was something Phil said back in the day. He said he would never ban someone and take away their ability to make a living. But he's like, oh, Jonathan Little doesn't make a living for my site, so we can ban him. Which, you know, hey, again, fair statement. Yeah, Some that's... people think that's hypocritical to say that we would never ban someone for speaking poorly but then he did it but I mean again you're a private business you can do whatever you want of course you can do whatever you want but do you have any uh, regrets about what you did or what you said or if you could go back in time would you maybe play this a little differently just to kind of preserve your ability to you know get involved in the some of the juicy games on there I certainly would have been more tactful I'm sure like I don't have to make jokes right I can just have a boring stream where we just sit here and literally only talk strategy the entire time but, um, I mean, another issue I have is that some of their paid pros have made it very clear. They stated multiple times they think that your money is as safe at ACR as it is on a licensed, regulated, FDIC-insured bank. And that seems ridiculous to me. So I said that's ridiculous. And to be fair, if, if, the, if uh, Phil Maggie thinks that the money is safer than a bank, and I'm saying it's not – then, I mean, like, if you think that's an out-of-line statement, then, you know, ban me. I think he also did not like that I kind of bundle all of the sites that operate illegally in America into the same bucket to some extent. Because he seemed to not like that I compared him to Lock Poker, which was, like, very, very devious back in the day, where they would be operating, paying lots of money on advertise, for advertising, but then not cashing out anyone. And they did this for, like, a year. Like, obviously, that's, like, pretty much as bad as you can do. Beyond, you know, it's like straight up running off. I mean, maybe it's worse than straight up running off with the money because they're still operating and getting new players, right? Yeah, getting more so, money that they're never going to give back, right? Yeah. Right. So, I mean, I understand that you may not want to be compared to people in that bucket, but I was not saying that you are like them. I'm saying that you have one thing in common with them, which is you are operating in America unlicensed and unregulated. And, I mean, that's just factually true, right? And so I feel like a lot of stuff I said was true besides the jokes about the sites being rigged and again they were jokes i'm sorry if they didn't think they were i made it very clear multiple times they were jokes they seem to ignore that anyway i think everything else i said was very much just true but that does not necessarily paint acr in a positive light and um it's tough it's tough because like i'm going to tell my students don't put a ton of money in any of these sites that cater to americans because there is a chance every single one of them goes down because there have been plenty of them that have gone down in the past and people who had their money there either lost it or it was locked up for a long time, and I don't want that to happen to my students. Because at the end of the day, my loyalty is not to ACR or any poker site. My loyalty is to my students because they pay me money and I love them, right? It's really what it amounts to is that you're loyal to the people who pay your bills at the end of the day, and my students pay the bills to some extent, and it's my job to make sure they do not potentially make a detrimental mistake like putting money in a site and having that site shut down and then that site not giving them their money back because I remember Lock Poker I remember UB and Full Tilt and the ones from uh, even before that and like even some of these sites were operating in what they they didn't even know they were doing anything out of line like I remember Netteller locked up people's money for a long time where I, I final tabled the PCA and one of the players there took all the money and put it in Netteller I put all my money in PokerStars Netteller somehow had their money locked up for like the next year and that player couldn't cash out their money and that's just ridiculous right and so you learn, don't put all your money in any one site because something may happen. And um, apparently they did not like me saying, don't put all your money in ACR. Yeah, and in fairness, Jonathan, you actually made that same point 
Um, the first time I interviewed you, uh, you said that you do play on ACR and that you are very careful about how much money you have on there at any given time. That was the advice you gave your students, our listeners, um, and it's actually advice that I've taken. You know, I do a lot of cashing out on ACR. I know, humble brag, right? But <laughs> yes, congrats. congrats. <laughs> what I, I mean, I only, only tried to cash out a few times. And to be fair, I never had a problem with their cash outs. And I think what happens is a lot of people have that same experience. You've never had a problem cashing out. Therefore, they project that onto the future, that you will never have a problem cashing out. And, you know, past results do not always indicate future performance. Like, I mean, full tilt, great example, right? Everything was fine up until it wasn't. I made a $300,000 cash out from full tilt three days before Black Friday to hit my bank account, no problem. Wow. And then Black Friday happened, and then everybody else's money was locked up for the next however long it was, two years or whatever. Well, you talk about good and timing. That was good timing. It was it was very, very lucky. Right. <laughs> and, I mean, sometimes you're lucky. <laughs> you just have to be aware that that is a possibility. So I, I don't think it's out of line to tell my students don't keep a ton of money on the site. Yeah. and But just to clarify, when I said before that I do a lot of cashing out, the reason why is because when my money even gets to a reasonable amount, on uh, ACR, I take as much of it off as I can. Uh, so it's not to say that all I do is win, 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 <laughs> because obviously no one is uh, no one is that good at this game anymore. Uh, well, so what I recommend most people do though is like say you play like I was playing online one day a week, right? I was playing on Sundays. This is how a lot of recreational players play. They get to play on the weekends, right? Right. So I knew that on any individual day I would put in about twelve thousand dollars worth of va uh, volume in tournaments. So I wanted to have about twelve to fifteen k in the account. So I'd make sure I have 12 to 15K in the account on Sunday. I would play. If we'd get up to 20, cash out eight of it, right? And if we get down to four, top up to 12. And I don't think you have to be like super stringent about it. Like if I got up to 20, sometimes I would just leave it in there. But if I ever had a big score and got 200 in there, I would obviously cash out a pile. But back in the day, people did not do this. I want to make that clear. I used to play sit and goes on party poker. And I was playing $200 buy in sit and goes where the bankroll you need is maybe like 40K. And I'd be sitting there with like $300,000 in my account for no reason whatsoever. I just didn't need the money. And that was stupid, even though, you know, Party Poker has been like the most trustworthy site. And I just didn't know any better back then. And there's no reason to treat a poker site like a bank account. Yeah, me too. I was I was very active online in the early days of online poker. And man, I used to leave all my money on there. I, I had probably my net worth on uh, Paradise Poker at one point. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I was the same with party poker. I had like literally three thousand dollars in my bank account and three hundred on party poker. Like that's just that's just the dumbest thing in the world, right? Even though like party poker has been perfect in every possible way, it was still not wise. Yeah. So don't don't do that. Don't yeah. do that, please. Yeah. And it's still good advice. And if you want to ban me for saying it, you can. Every site can ban me for saying that if they think that's out of line. Right. Yeah. No, I think that it was some of the other comments that you made, and maybe people couldn't really tell that you were joking about certain <laughs> things. Now, one thing I noticed is that during this conversation you're saying ACR pros, sponsored pros, and on your stream you will usually say shills, and we had some fun with that last week. I mean, do you think that there's a negative connotation to the, to using the term shill? I did not previously, but it seems like a lot of people did take offense to this, and I'm not trying to offend anyone, right? And I'm, I'm trying to be a, a reasonable human here, and not I'm just, I'm just trying to give, give good advice to my students is what it amounts to. And I'm not trying to offend anyone who has made the decision to represent any company. You're allowed to, to do whatever you need to. And, and I understand that people who are paid by these companies, like I said, you know, you're loyal to the people who pay you. And this is why it seems like some of them came out of the woodwork attacking me who I've never interacted with in my whole life. 
they're they're you know speaking poorly of me because they're paid by ACR. ACR apparently doesn't like me, so you got to jump on the bandwagon, right? There is a bandwagon. But, um, so, You're right. There's like a mob mentality that happens, especially on Twitter and other social media platforms. Where there's this issue where people like you, they feel like they have to be on a team. On a team. And if the team boss doesn't like you, you sure better be with that team boss, or there might be problems. Yeah. And um, but in, anyway, um, is did, I, I did not I was not aware the term shill was negative in some people's minds. Um, but if it is, and you tell me that's out of line, I'm not going to say it, right? Like there are plenty of things you don't say that are that have negative connotations or or whatever. Like you were just oblivious to. But like in my mind, a shill is someone who is paid to try to promote something, and that that's it. And it turns out usually shells are paid to promote gamblers. I mean, I know I know Phil Nagy plays plenty of poker, so I mean they're promoting Phil Nagy and his company, so they and they seem to enjoy gambling. So I, I didn't think like anything of it. But if they don't like it, I'm happy to not do things that offend people. I'm not trying to offend people here. Yeah, I mean as I pointed out, you already changed your usage of that word in this conversation. So yeah, I mean, like I, if I'm ignorant about something, I don't want to be ignorant about it. And if you tell me shill is a bad word, I won't say the word shill. Like I don't care. It's not like that's not a problem. Clear and with if them. I did offend any of them, I'm sorry. I wasn't trying to offend you. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, like I said, people have to pay their bills, and if they choose to pay their bills by being paid to represent a company that is operating in an unregulated environment, that's their that's their business. They can do whatever they want. However. Their followers should be aware that what they are saying may not be in their followers' best interest because they're not paid by their followers. They're paid by the unlicensed, unregulated company, right? And uh, this is a tough thing because, like, if like I would have no problem representing some of the poker sites that I think are doing everything right. And if they do start sponsoring Jonathan Little, which you know there's no no deals in the future as far as I can tell, but if they do start sponsoring me, you should probably take what I say about them with a little bit less uh, weight, right? Because I'm now paid to make them look good. And hopefully people are smart enough to realize where the money comes from in various businesses. And if you are following someone who is paid by a company to make that company look good, understand it may not be 100% honest. Absolutely. It may be 100% honest or it may not be. Right. And this is where you have to like really trust the person because like I would not work with ACR or any unregulated side. I have plenty of offers to do so and I just don't because it's not worth it. I don't need to do that to get by, and I don't want to do that. Do you really think you could make a hundred thousand dollars a month doing that? Because if you do, I think you should. <laughs> All right. So my my trading site's doing quite well. We have about five thousand paying members, which is you know you can extrapolate a bit, and I have a pretty big email list, many multiples of five thousand. And someone did the math. One of their one of their paid representatives, <laughs> not shills. One of their paid representatives. <laughs> Great. And. Um, they just they did some back of the envelope math. You convert three percent of your people. Each person rakes I think it was a hundred dollars a month. You get twenty percent of that or twenty five percent of that, and it comes out to about one hundred twenty five k a month. Now some people say maybe you'll have horrible conversion. I would have to change my business model to do this. I would stop or I would at least have the option to, for people to get my training site for free if they rake let's say a hundred dollars a month or whatever or five hundred a month whatever I need we needed. Basically, you take over the strategy of uh, the company PokerStrategy.com back in the day where you provide training in exchange for you playing and we get all of your rake back. And um, could do I think that's actually possible? Some people think it's not, but everybody does not know every aspect of my business either. So The key point is here, you didn't just pull that figure out of the air, right? You didn't just make up a number. Like there is One of their people over lunch with me discussed it, and we, we did math, and we figured out 125K seemed reasonable, so I could assume a little bit less. Do you want to do it? And I said no, <laughs> because it just doesn't make sense. Right, because you don't want to have to 
say things that you don't feel and that aren't in the best interest of your students. And, and also, I know that if you make a deal with one of these sites that is operating in an unregulated market, if poker ever does come back to America, the good actors are not going to want to work with you. Right. And it turns out if you're operating in the – if you're in a very open market like if American poker, if and when it does come back, you would certainly like for them to work with you. And in reality, I think Jonathan Will is a good candidate for them to work with because I have a lot of American followers, right? Yeah. So sure. I'm not going to do anything to tarnish my brand. And also – like say I don't know World Series of Poker offered me a, a job tomorrow doing whatever promoting them, like like that could end up being very valuable long term, and I don't have any fear of them going broke and taking everyone's money. Because I mean <laughs> like look at Lock Poker right? There were some Lock Poker pros who stayed with Lock Poker until basically the end, and their reputations were essentially ruined. A few of them bailed out early and you know they salvaged their reputations, but a few of them stuck around, and basically none of them are in poker today, at least not in the public light. And I do not want that to happen to me because I make money by helping people get better at poker and by people generally wanting to learn from, wanting to learn from me. And if people hate me because they know that some number of my fans had all their money on a site and the site took it, that's going to look really, really bad. So that's not what I'm trying to do. The, well, the downside is just so detrimental to the point that I don't want to do it. It's like doing illegal things, right? Like imagine I could be a drug dealer or something and make tons of money doing it. Would I do it? Like the answer is no because I don't want to go to jail. That'd be terrible. Yeah, I, I get your analogy. It's not a, it's not perfect, but I, I get what you're saying. I mean, it there. kind of is to some extent, though, because <laughs> at this point, I make good money from teaching people to play poker. And if I somehow deceive people and tell them to do something that ends up wrecking them, that's going to look horribly bad on me. It's, it's, I think a lot of people approach this from a different like mindset than the way I approach it, because most people who play poker play poker to try to make money for themselves, period. They're not thinking in terms of scale. They're not trying to help other people. And benefit other people and they don't recognize that if you have you know a bunch of people who are willing to give you ten dollars or a hundred dollars a month like your allegiance now very much shifts from trying to look out for specifically yourself to trying to look out for all of those other people because if you treat them right and help them get better at whatever they're paying you to get better at you're just going to crush it and like at this point i don't care if i like if every online site banned me i wouldn't care because that's not where i'm making most of the money anymore and a lot of people are not in that spot, which is why they don't understand. And that's understandable, right? People are not going to understand if they don't understand the scenario. It's very hard to walk in someone else's shoes and to, and to see things the way that person sees them. So I wanted to ask you, uh, who would you consider your role models? Maybe not so much uh, from a teaching standpoint, but just from a – is there anyone that comes to mind when I ask that question like that, that you admire and would like to try to – uh, emulate? The answer would be Mike because he was the poker ambassador, right? He helped everyone. Everyone loved him. And um, he, he somehow got in front of the masses and everybody and everybody who knows anything about poker knows who Mike Sexton is. So he's good at marketing. He's good at promoting. He's good at playing poker. And um, yeah, he's the guy. I mean, one of my favorite memories is I was at Montreal for a tournament and I was having a breakfast like I often do at tournament stops for whoever wants to come by before the main event. So the day before the main event, I'd have a breakfast. I'd email my students, tell them to come by. I'll buy a breakfast. So I, I mentioned it to Mike Sexton. He's like, oh, that's a good good idea that, that you're doing this. So then the next day, we're having the breakfast, and Mike Sexton just shows up 90 minutes early before the tournament. It's like, yeah, I figured I'd come have breakfast. And, you know, the, the fans loved it. It was amazing. And that's just like the kind of stuff you would randomly do where he thinks, you know, he, he might as well. He's awake. 
instead of sitting in his hotel room by himself, why not get up and go make the day for some people? And um, that's the kind of stuff that he did, and that's the kind of stuff I try to do. Yeah, uh, and you can't go wrong listing Mike Sexton among your your heroes or your role models. Man, we, we're he has gonna... an autobiography that I I help get published actually. So um, I help D&B Poker source their content. That's a biggest poker publishing company at this point, and um, they had never done a poker biography. But I was like, look, I've talked to Mike Sexton. He has all the stories. He knows something about everyone, <laughs> yeah. and we should really get him to write a book. And they were skeptical, but eventually I convinced everybody to do it, and they did it. I mean, the way I talked to Mike about this is after tournaments, we would just like go out and have a beer, or meet before before a poker tournament, and just you know sit down and have breakfast. And one day, I don't know how it happened, but he invited me back to his house after a tournament at Bellagio, and he had this giant book called Poker Face Two. I would tell every poker player, if you care about poker and history, go buy it. You may not be able to get a copy because it's very limited, but it's a humongous book. It must be like, I don't know, 30 inches in width. And it's full of pictures of poker players from like the 90s and early 2000s. And we were just flipping through looking at the book, and Mike knew a story about every single person in that book. <laughs> and like, you, you know, literally, it's like a 500-page book, too. It's not, it's not small. And like, he just knows everything about everything. And, and um, fortunately, we got the book written, and uh, it's great. Check it out. Life's a gamble. If you get the audiobook version he reads it himself so I, I think that's a good thing for people to do and I think learning the history and where we come from is very important because a lot of people have not been in poker all that long because in most things people come into it they do it for a little while then they quit and it's important to know all of the efforts and hardship the earlier dedicated poker players went through to give us the great game we have today uh, we should never take that for granted because they really did blaze the trail so mm -hmm. yeah, I've never read that book. I'm certainly going to uh, read it now. Now that you recommended it, you know I uh, I was always a huge Mike Sexton fan. I told a, a story or two about him uh, in recent episodes, so I won't rehash those. But uh, you know he's someone I always admired, and to be honest, you are too, Jonathan. Uh, I was really upset to see uh, people trashing you on Twitter and and kind of bad things happening to you. Uh, because I think that you've been a good ambassador for the game. Well, thank you. I would say, though, that I don't feel all that bad about the way things went because at the end of the day, if you're going to ban me for saying jokes and saying things that protect my students and make sure they don't get screwed somehow down the road, I mean, I deserve it then, right? Because I'm going to say jokes, and if you're sitting there streaming for 16 hours, you're going to say jokes eventually, and um, I'm going to protect my students. And... Like I was talking to my lawyer about this. He's like, yeah, I mean, because, I mean, he was prepared to do, like, slander and libel suits if necessary. But it's, like, not necessary because I came out looking great. And ACR came out looking, well, not so great. Because it turns out if you ban people for speaking, it makes you not look so – I don't even know what the right word is. Trustworthy is not the right word. But it, make, it makes you look pretty aggressive. Yeah, it certainly was aggressive on their part. Uh, I understand why they did it because, you know, basically in Phil's view – what you were doing was hurting his business and getting rid of you would have helped his business. And when you make business decisions, for most business people, that is the entire list of criteria. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> does this help my company or hurt my company? And you know, having this man selling people not to put money on my site, yada, 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 whatever you were saying. That's the thing, though, is that I think a lot of people misconstrued is that I was playing on this site for many thousands of dollars. I know you and were. You were, yeah. I mean, like, I'm not telling people, I told people it was the best option of the unregulated sites. 
And Bill said something to the effect of, like, if you say it's a bad site and it's the best of the bad sites, is that really a compliment? I'm like, well, <laughs> if it makes me go and play there because it's the best of the options, I think it's it's better than me saying it's the worst of the bad sites. That is true, right? yeah. And, um, you know, I, I gave my business to the site that had good volume. Their their software worked, you know, solid 90% of the time. It only, it only crashed 10% of the time or so. So it was, like, it was reasonable, right? And... I mean, I know for a fact a lot of my students went and signed up there and played there. To be fair, they didn't put a lot of money on there, and I know that every time you cash out from a poker site, it ca- it costs the poker site a little bit of money. So maybe they didn't like frequent cash outs or whatever. But you know, I mean, I, I'm not. I don't know if I was even necessarily a net negative for the site because I was. I had have a ton of people watching me play when I was playing, and I would recommend the site to all of them if they want to play online poker from America. Well, Jonathan, you know I have a show business entertainment background, and we have an expression, there's no such thing as bad publicity, and you see it every day, like some horrible news story comes out about this celebrity or that celebrity, and then the next thing you know, that celebrity is selling 10 million copies of a book or getting a part in a movie. It's just, if people are talking about you, it's good. <laughs> That's, Maybe that was ACR's plan all along. Yeah, it could be. So this could be a, a net win for them as well. So anyway, thanks for, uh, you know, sharing your thoughts on it with me. And it's something that all of our listeners have been eagerly following. And of course, you know, many of them are playing on ACR as well. So, well, you're welcome. And I, I, I wish it would have gone down differently because in reality, if Phil just sent me an email and said, hey, I see you're talking poorly about my site. Will you please stop? I would say, what, what, what am I doing out of line? He would have told me and I would have stopped because if you tell me you don't like the jokes, Fine, I don't have to make these kind of jokes because I'm not trying to offend anybody out here and make people think that I'm saying something that I'm not. And that's not how it went down. I'm not sure why that's not how it went down, but I mean, it is what it is. To be fair, I did have him blocked on Twitter because about three years ago, he was consistently trolling me. Every time I post, well, often when I post something, he posts something like really nasty and snarky. Like, I mean, to be fair, like he posted whenever he banned me. And so I blocked him because I don't deal with nonsense like that. I ban people people from my Twitter. So uh, I certainly don't have a problem with him banning me. But um, <laughs> right. I don't know why they just wouldn't be logical, reasonable, rational people, especially if I'm – I still would have continued just playing every Sunday on their site and I would have been less aggressive. But apparently that's not how they operate. Well, this is interesting. Now, this is kind of breaking news. I don't know if I heard this before. You had him blocked already and he had a history of – uh, trolling you, it sounds like. So this this wasn't just an isolated incident, was it? I think there. I think he was troll. I mean, he used to troll a lot of people. He would just always post like aggressive, snarky things, and I don't have to deal with that in my life. Right. So I'm I'm pretty quick to block people who are overly aggressive or overly nasty to me on Twitter because it's my Twitter account and I can read or see whoever I want. And if I don't want you there, you're not going to be there, right? Absolutely. So. Um, but yeah, I did have him blocked, and I mean that was something he says. Like he had me blocked. How could I contact him? Well, as soon as they banned me, I got an email saying that I'd been banned. So uh, I guess they knew you, how to contact me. <laughs> you were contactable one way or I the other. I was contacted immediately. Yeah. And um, I, I can understand if the guy just like doesn't like me or whatever, that's okay. And if he wants to ban me for not liking me, it's okay. But it would be nice to have known the rules clearly ahead of time, because I'm not trying to break the rules. I'm not trying to be out of line, and I'm trying not trying to offend anyone. Just trying to put on a good show and help people get better at poker. Yeah. And, um, you know, he didn't think I was doing that. Well, have you have have you found a new side piece or not? 
Um, I found a few new side pieces. Fortunately, there are four or five side pieces that operate. That, that's a negative term. You can't say that. Come on. I know. That's the kind of stuff that gets you banned immediately. I'm not going to get banned again. That's the kind of stuff that offends the side piece sites. And that's not what I'm trying to do. But like, you, you see that joke right there, how that was like kind of dry? We would have been banned for that. And it's like, come on, man. But um, yeah, there, there's some other sites. They have reasonable volume. I mean, the reason I played on ACR to begin with is because it had the best volume. It did not have the best software. It did not have the softest games, but it had the best volume, right? Which is all you really care about to some extent if you want to play high stakes. But there are other sites that have plenty of you know, $200 to $500 buy-in tournaments. And if you play three or four of them, you can easily get in the volume. Sure. Oh, in case anyone didn't get my joke, um, Phil tweeted that... <laughs> Don't get banned. Don't get banned. Yeah. Phil <laughs> tweeted that uh, Jonathan was tweeting a treating ACR like a, like a side piece. So that was that was the reference there, just in case anyone was not following the story <laughs> as closely as... You made as. a substantial blunder, though, of not <laughs> interweaving that into the same sentence and same breath, because there was definitely a solid seven seconds in between those two statements. <laughs> Could be taken and out of laugh, context, right? that's what they did. And it's like, it's so absurd that anyone would fall for such nonsense, but I guess it doesn't make that much sense, because I mean, it does make sense, because... If you look at social media, that's what people consume nowadays. They want very, very short tweets, and they want very, very short clips. And if it doesn't fit in that clip, clip it out, and then you can make people look like you want to make them look. Right. Like right there, you could look very, very sexist, vulgar. Misogynist, right? Yeah. Yeah. and But you're not. I mean, I presume you're not. No. I don't know I you know. all that well. <laughs> I mean, but now we never know, right? And um, it's it's – that's a bit of a problem with social media. You can make people look however you want to make them look if you try hard enough. Yeah. Well, I would love to uh, continue down that road, Jonathan, but we are on a time schedule. And, of course, I, it would just be horrible to have you on the podcast without at least doing a little poker strategy. So did you bring a hand we can talk about? Yeah, I forgot about that. Okay. Um, so just the other day, one of my students, Blas Zerzhao, took fourth place in the $10,000 buy-in party poker WPT main event. Wow. For about 550000 bucks. This is his third big score. Back in the day, about a year and a half ago, a long time ago, he turned $22 into $1.3 million on party poker. Holy. I think third in their 10K. <laughs> then he won uh, Winamax, the biggest tournament ever on Winamax, which had like infinite people. Um, he won that for like 250 k And now here he is again winning 550 k And... I love him so much because he's smart and disciplined. And like even this tournament, he realizes like, yeah, I have over a million dollars, but I'm going to still keep my average buy-in at $300 or something like that. So it's not like he's just blasting off playing high stakes because to be fair, he's smart. He's not definitively sure he is a huge winner yet, right? And if you're not definitively a huge winner, you shouldn't be buying into $10,000 events. So anyway, he satellited into this one for a thousand bucks, I think. And um, he ended up taking fourth. So anyway, there was a hand early in the tournament that I think shows you how he gets after it. And remember, this is a $10,000 tournament, which is a lot of money to anyone. And he raises with six five of diamonds from the cutoff seat, which is perfectly fine and standard. We're playing 120 big blinds deep, okay? So we're very deep. Um, the button, good, strong, loose, aggressive player, three bets to eight big blinds. So we have a few options. We can just fold, we can call, or we can four bet. I think all of those are certainly reasonable here he decides to call I and mean, how do you feel about the call yeah i mean i i guess calling is okay i would typically fold you know it's kind of early in the tournament i'm now going to be out of position against a player you're telling me is a really good player on the button i mean i do have a, enough of a stack that i have the implied odds if i do happen to flop really well uh you know i might be able to make a lot of money on this hand but i think 
in balance, I would typically fold here and maybe I would probably call with hand like Jack 10 suited, maybe 10 9 suited, but I think all the way down to 6 5, I would probably just throw it away. How about you? I would definitely call. You're very nitty. You're very tight. Am I? Let <laughs> <laughs> uh, I me mean, look. Whenever you're playing pretty deep in tournaments, I think it's fine to splash around with good suited connected type stuff. And yeah, this is on the lower end, and certainly, like, like I said, you could fold, you could format if you felt like you can kind of do whatever you want here. And um, in general, I typically try to splash around early in a tournament just to see what develops. Um, I'm not sure who the exact opponent was. I know they were thought to be a little bit too aggressive. So maybe you have a good implied odds. Maybe you can get some bluffs through. Who knows, right? It's also tough because I don't exactly know how people perceive Blas because maybe they think he's lucky fish. Maybe they think he's a right. good poker player. I'm not sure. I mean, I know he's a good poker player, but who knows what how other people perceive him. So that can impact your strategy too. So anyway, we call. Flop comes seven of clubs, three of diamonds, two of diamonds. So we have basically the nuts. We have a gut shot straight draw and a backdoor flush draw. Okay? <laughs> yeah, very nutty there. Yeah. 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 So we check. Opponent bets 12 big blinds into 18. And now I think our only good option here is to raise because we have one of the few draws in our range and there are certainly some nut hands in our range that would like to raise as well, like the sets, right? Only the sets. So we probably have all the sets in our range given the kind of small three bet. So that's nine combinations of nut hands. I'm not even sure if we raise the five, four suited preflop. If we do, we may fold that to a three bet. Like I said, six, five suited is on the bottom end of play playable, right? So we really don't have very many draws here that lack showdown value. So we should, if we're going to have a raising range with sets, which I do think is fine, we probably want to use as many reasonable bluffs as we can. And I think gut shot plus backdoor draws good enough. I so, think, um, do you mean to say that folding is bad without a backdoor flush draw? I think folding is fine, but with the backdoor flush draw, I think you have to go for it. Okay. Cause you have no other bluffs. Yeah, you got to have some bluffs, right? So, yeah, because well, of course... you don't have to if your opponent's a calling station. But well. uh, so like, this is the thing. is A lot of people are playing games against very weak, straightforward players. So when this player threw best you preflop, they have, like, jacks are better or ace-king. If you know your opponent has jacks are better or an ace-king, clearly just don't even play preflop, really. Just And then just fold the flop, right? But this player, this loose, aggressive, good player, is three-betting all the big offsuit stuff. So he has loads of just... Queen high, jack high, ace high, right? Sure. And those hands are going to be in a pretty tough spot if we check raise. And the thing is, is that if I know I'm check raising with sevens, threes, twos, six, five suited, and five, four suited, right? We have nine combination of nuts and then nine combinations of draws, right? Or sorry, eight combination of draws. And that's even then kind of a little bit nut heavy. So what's the opponent going to do, right? They're just, they're just screwed immediately. Yeah, and when you break it down like that, yeah, I mean, we can put tremendous pressure on those big pairs if we check raise here and then fire, fire. I mean, he has to fold everything, basically. Uh, it sure puts him in a bad spot. And in reality, we can probably check raise even a few more hands. Like if we had the, I don't know, 10 9 at clubs or something, maybe that's a check raise. You know, yeah. lower cards are back, back door of straight draws, 10 high. I think I'd rather move with the 6 high first with the gut shots, but if you told me we had, I don't know, 18 combinations of bluffs and 9 combinations of nuts, that's probably fine. Well, Especially since some of the draws have good equity. This episode is going to go down in history, Jonathan, because no one's ever called me nitty before. <laughs> and like, Super you know, watching and, and talking through this hand, I'm actually feeling a little nitty because I don't know if I would have found this check raise, but obviously it, it does make a lot of sense because I would like to be able to check raise 
when I have, you know, three sevens or three threes or three twos. So obviously I need to have a few bluffs in my range. And what could they possibly be? Uh, this is probably the perfect candidate. Yeah, I mean, 5-4-2 would be better. Right. I don't think you want to do it with, like, ace-5 or ace-4 for gut shots there because ace-high is actually good sometimes against this player. Sure. So I think you want – and the thing is, is when your bluffs – I'm sorry, when your nut hands are just, like, definitively the nuts, like seven threes and twos for sets, when, you have, when you're raising for value ranges only sets, you can raise with junkier draws because your nut hands have, like, 100% equity, right? It's a, it's a little bit different if you're raising with – like say you raise with pocket jacks on seven three two. Now that doesn't win every time, right? Right. But but here like sevens threes and twos wins pretty much every time. Right. So as your nuts get stronger and stronger compared to your opponent's continuing range, your bluffs can get junkier and junkier. But as your as your uh, value hands are slightly weaker and sometimes beat, you need to make sure your bluffs have more equity, or just bluff with fewer combinations. Either one. Um. Okay, so anyway, we're going to raise here. And the fun thing about this is that when we raise here, we already know we're triple barreling off in this scenario. Unless it's, I mean, I'm trying to think, it's not even like, I mean, if it comes 7 7 or 3 3 or 2 2, maybe we don't triple off. But we're triple barreling here. Okay? And <laughs> yeah. over, basically. Yeah, well, the thing is, you know, this 7 high flop is, it feels like it's a better flop for for our range than it is for the three betters range. Like how many? Well, so here the opponent has the range advantage because they have aces, kings, queens, etc., And we probably don't because we four bet them. But we have the nut advantage, which means we just have more hands that have a, a ton of equity against the opponent's range. And when you have the nut advantage, you want to be doing a lot of check raising with your best made hands and your draws. Right. Which is what we're doing here. And like I said, it's kind of hard to find obvious draws on 732. Makes perfect sense to me. So... The anyway, we check raise. He bet 12. We make it 30. Well, 29 and a half. With 83 behind. And I think this is fine. We may even want to go a touch smaller. Because in reality, if the opponent's sitting here with like King Jack, they're just always going to fold, right? Yeah, and likewise, if he's sitting there with aces, he's always going to call. Right. And if he does have aces, we want to do our best to give, get the maximum amount of fold equity on the turn and river. So I think well at the same time though we want to ask what would i like to do with my sets right so we're not really concerned with our six five suited we're concerned with how do we play our sets here and if we think our opponent's going to fold out all the queen jack stuff no matter how much we raise and they're always going to call with aces and over pairs suppose we should go a little bit bigger like 30 right yeah that's a great point so um it, it, it you have to make sure you're thinking of your whole range and not how do i play my six five suited right right, right. so anyway we make it 29 opponent calls turns to three which is not very good for us because now we lose two combinations of nuts, right? Right. Because now we only have three sevens, three twos, and one threes. Yeah. That said, in reality, if we're only bluffing with those per perhaps eight combinations of draws, we're still, we still have a one-to-one -one ratio, which is usually fine on the turn, of draws to uh, nut hands, especially if our nut hands are really the nuts, as they definitely are here. So we should probably keep betting. So pot 77 big blinds, we have 83. We want to make sure we bet small-ish here so that we can put our opponent in on the river, or put, our, put ourselves in on the river. Our opponent had us covered by a little bit. So we want to put ourselves in by the river and still have some fold equity. What a lot of people do wrong here is they'll bet like 40 big blinds on the turn and then only have 43 left on the river. Then your opponent's going to find more hero calls and if you bet a little bit smaller here, I think. Yeah, so, you have more leverage if you have more chips behind, of course. So, right. Yeah. The, that's the thing is though, is that when you bet small on the turn, you know you're getting called a lot because you're they're giving them great odds, right? Yeah, but if we have a three barrel 
plan, we want to get called a lot, mm -hmm. right? Because that's just more money for us to win with our river shove. Correct. Assuming you don't price them in on the river, whatever pricing them in on the river means, and that's different for each person. Right. And, and we're running the risk of kind of pricing them in to some extent because pot's already 77. If we bet 25 and the opponent calls, it goes up to 125 and we have 60 left. So on the river, is the opponent going to be good 25% of the time if we're bluffing all of our bluffs? I mean, they will be, right? They will be. Because we, we have 50% nuts, 50% bluffs. They will be. So in yeah. theory, we should give up with some of our bluffs on the river, but uh, I can tell you we're probably not. Yeah, so, that wasn't anyway. the plan. That's not why we check-raised the flop, because we we have a three-barrel plan here. So, yeah, but that does yeah. make sense, though. So let's bet small here on the turn so we can leverage that later, at least to yeah, some extent. I, yeah. I think we should probably even go smaller on the turn. Like, pot 77, we go 25. And I think maybe even, like, 20 would be better to ensure we get called very frequently. Yeah, I mean, we check-raised to 29 big blinds on the flop, and now down-betting all the way to 20 blinds on the turn i mean that's going to get called the idea of yeah i would be careful saying things like down betting because in reality it was diff a different scenario on the flop where our opponent bet and we were raising him right? right like here we're just making a bet so i'm i'm not necessarily equating those two things as significant because like i said right here if our, if our range is the nuts i can give the opponent any odds it doesn't matter right i can bet six big blinds and they're, they're still going to lose sure they well, lose maybe not all. six but maybe you know i can bet 12 right um so I don't think bet size, like the fact that we're betting smaller, I don't think that matters, especially given our stack depth. If we had more chips, I would be betting a little bit bigger, but we don't have more chips, right? So anyway, we go 25, opponent is going to call, river is an eight, which is basically a blank, and uh, now we have an easy all-in for half pot. Okay, this, so we this, do it? This is how this is how my students bluff off their stack on the early <laughs> levels of $10,000 buying tournaments. And it's kind of early in the tournament, too, you said, right? Yeah, yeah, like second level. Oh, my so, uh, God. You know, show up, put down your 10K, triple it off, second level, no problem. Anyway, this time you went all in and the opponent folded. Because... Oh, okay, so he got through. Right, well, you did mention that he gets fourth place or something, so, yeah. Well, he could have re-entered. Well, that's true, too, that's true. Wow. Yeah, so I actually did a webinar with Blas yesterday. We went through many, many hands, I don't know, like probably like 30 or 40 hands, and it was like two and a half hours long, and it was great, great. The students enjoyed it, and that's the kind of stuff I'm trying to bring. We're showing off the people who are crushing it, who... You know, started playing small stakes and now have millions of dollars, and they're they're happy to go through their hands with me. And I, I learned a lot too. There were a few spots where he used different sizings than I would, and we talked them out, talked it through. And and some of them were like, yeah, you know what, you're probably right. And that's that's good because I'm sitting here learning from the up and coming players, right? Yeah. So this this Blas guy, he must be one of your big success stories. You don't have too many people who cash for two million dollars in a year and a half when they started playing twenty dollar tournaments a year and a half ago. <laughs> There's not a ton of those. No, that's the dream, right? I mean, that's the dream right there. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 great. It's perfect. And he's smart about it too. Like he, you know, and took all the money, invested it, and finished college. I mean, even after he won, he spent the next year finishing college and getting his degree. And I mean, he's he's doing it right. Well, that's cool. Well, congrats to him, and uh, you know, good on you for uh, helping guide him along the way as he's grown. Uh, you know, his game. I'm sure that years ago he wasn't capable of making a play like this in level two well maybe he was i think if anything i've toned him down a little bit <laughs> oh so he's got the he's got that in him he's got a little he, bit he's of that. one of those who's not afraid to battle yeah yeah but, but I mean, to be fair if you take a student who is overly aggressive i think it's actually easier to make them big winners in tournaments than people who are, are way too tight and passive because tight passive people just really don't like running big bluffs and you need to run big bluffs sometimes it's just part of good poker whereas 
you know, you tell people on the 732 board, all right, you probably don't need to check raise literally every hand, right? Don't check raise every hand, only check raise the few logical draws. And they can learn that and they do it. And then they're not drastically over bluffing anymore and they print money. Um, but I mean, like even when I'm playing, whenever I'm, I'm streaming online, I'll find myself in spots where I'm like, okay, I know this is a bluff. I think I'm getting called every time, but I still just do it because I know it's the right play. And um, a shockingly high amount of the time it works out. Like right here on the river, when you bet half pot, you're like, oh my God, this guy clearly has an overpair. He's definitely really calling, calling right, yeah. yeah. The answer is yes, they are. <laughs> well, especially when the when the three pairs, and that kind of eliminates a lot of your strength. I think that in villain's shoes, I probably end up calling a lot. But I guess maybe when you're in the moment and you're like, geez, it's level two. This guy has done nothing but fire, fire, fire. <laughs> Can I even call it down with like queens? I don't know. Like that's it's easy sitting here knowing the guy has six high, but yeah. In the, that, the nice thing is too about this is that your opponent knows or at least presumes you're going to check raise the sets, but they don't know you're going to check raise a six five. Right. And also maybe you don't play every six five. Maybe they don't even think six five's in your range. Yeah, it's super hard to put. Or maybe you they on think anything. it's like weighted to where it's like twenty percent of your range. Maybe they think you format it sometimes or call it or fold it sometimes, right? Yeah. So if you start weighting the six five and the five four. Now maybe instead of there being eight combinations of bluffs, maybe there's like two or three or four on average. Yeah, I mean, to me the preflop is interesting because it's a big three bet, and I just hate being out of position with these kind of hands. I feel like I lose money when I call a big three bet from out of position with 6-5 suited. Even when I'm pretty You want to know why you're losing money with it? I'll tell you why you're losing money with it, because you're not check-raise, triple-barreling off with it. This is how you make money with these hands. I completely agree. If your plan is to call preflop and then check fold every time you miss, yeah, you're just going to be losing money with these hands. But you yeah. got to manufacture some pots sometimes by bluffing. Yeah. Well, I mean, our listeners know that I, I'm definitely, I, I find a lot of spots to uh, get after it, as you say. But uh, yeah, I'm not sure I would have seen this one. But uh, talking through it with you, it makes a lot of sense. So clearly, I've learned something today, and I hope that everyone that's hearing this did as well. Don't be afraid. Get in there and try stuff. I mean, I remember when I was teaching my dad poker a long time ago, he would always just be kind of weak, kind of passive. I mean, I was weak and passive when I first started. A lot of people are, right? Yeah. And there was a consistent spot that came up in his small stakes local games where someone would raise. He'd have like 20 big blinds with Jack-10 suited in the hijack seat. And he would just always call, miss the flop, and then just check fold and lose two big blinds. I'm like, Dad, you must go all in in these scenarios. You have to go all in. And I told him this for like six months. And finally, after losing every game, it's like, all right, I'm just going to try doing it. And then he won that tournament. And then he went on this huge upswing because everybody thought he was a nit, right? He had a reputation. And the nit yeah. starts ripping it in on you. It's like, all right, this guy clearly has a nut, so I'm going to fold. And he was just crushing the opponents because they were folding way too often to him. And like even today, he's still crushing it because people still fold way too often to him. And you have to not be afraid of going broke. A lot of people really want to protect their tournament life. But, I mean, understand, most people lose the tournament. So... Getting a minimum cash is not really the goal in a lot of scenarios. The goal is to 30x, 50x, 100x your money, right? Of course, yeah. That's why I talk a lot about how I think people take ICM considerations too far. They might misunderstand the concept, which is, of course, like if you're if you're at the final table and you're in fifth place in chips and the and the other four players are all really short stacks, it would be crazy for you to get all in with the chip leader if you don't have the nuts, right? So we all understand that, but you know, there's a lot of nuance to ICM and trying to factor it into whether you should take a spot or go for a bluff or even try a value bet 
if there aren't like very, very short stacks, like what if you're fifth in chips, but six, seven, eight, and nine are also kind of really close to where you are. But that's something we we talk about a lot on this show because I tend to take it too far the other way and always go for first, even in spots when I should let ICM lead me a little bit more. So, well, so there was a spot actually uh, forehanded in this tournament where previous, previous to this hand or before this hand, the stacks were all kind of close where maybe the chip leader had 60 big blinds, short stack had 30 big blinds, let's say. So everybody had a lot of chips forehanded. But then Blas lost the pot. He got down to 15 big blinds from 30. So now once you become the shortest of four by a decent margin, now ICM kind of goes out the window. And there was a spot where the big stack raised, uh, cut off, forehanded. Um, other 30 big blind stack folded, and Blas had a seven in the small blind, and he folded. And I mm. didn't didn't run the hand or anything, but I, I said, you know, you, you should look this one up. So then he ran it through ICMizer, and it says it's an easy shove. Yeah, I would shove and, every time there. Yeah. Yeah, and like even though you know you're going to get called sometimes because it went, you know, two big blinds, you're going to make it 15 all in. If that player, we like, you can just go through and run it on ICMizer, which is what Blas had open then. Like run it, run it against you know 60% opening range, 20% calling range, and then 50% opening range, 20% calling range, or, and figure out where you should no longer shove it. And it turns out A7 is just like an easy shove in that spot because you're now the shortest stack by a large margin. But if you change that, I haven't ran it, but I'm pretty sure this is gonna be true. If you make that other 30 big blind or make that 30 big blind stack down to 15 as well, it's probably a fold because now there's a decent amount of value in just trying to outlast the other player. Whereas with 15 big blinds and everybody else has 30 or more, you're very unlikely to outlast that 30 big, that 30 big blind player. So ICM's tough. I'm telling you, it's, it's difficult to, to learn these things, but you have to run a lot of numbers. And fortunately, I used to play sit-and-goes a long time ago. And what I would do is every day when I was 18 to 21 is I would play sit-and-goes for about four hours. I would 16 table. And then I would study every single game for the next two hours. Or I would go through every hand. There's a program that would tell you spots where it thinks you may be played wrong. I would always look at those. And if you do that every day for three years, they did that in the morning, then they did it again in the evening. Um, it turns out you get pretty good at these ICM spots, and that, that, that was just a spot where like you look at it and you know what the right play is if you've studied those scenarios over and over again for three years. Yeah, if you're playing sit and goes and you really are sharp with ICM, you're just going to you're going to make a lot of money because that's really what sit and goes are. Yeah, I mean, but it's interesting because like now I realize I have not actively studied ICM hardcore in a long time, but. You remember these things and you see these things and they get like ingrained into your brain after a while and then you run it through ICMizer and it confirms you're right and it makes you feel good. Make sure, of course, you don't enter information that makes it say you're right, right? <laughs> um, that's what a lot of people do wrong or they just like click ICMizer and it brings up some default numbers which are probably not accurate. So you need to make sure you're active, actively and accurately putting in your opponent's ranges for, you know, their raising range and their calling off range and understand that sometimes. Like, there are different player personas, right, where maybe one player with a big sack is raising tight and then calls off with everything. Clearly don't jam A7 against that player, right? Sure. And then there are other players who raise 100% and fold 90% of it, right? I mean, that's you jam everything against that player. But then if you look at those spots and you see that shoving the A7 is profitable against you know, 80% of player types, if you're oblivious to what your opponent's doing, which you, know, you shouldn't be if you're playing four-handed at a final table, but if you're oblivious to them, you know that 80% of the time this is going to be a profitable play. And, and then you just do it. But yeah. if you look at it from another point and you see it's um, like a different a different scenario and you know it's only good 20% of the time, then you don't take it, even though it could be profitable this time. 
Yeah, and be honest about who that villain is because confirmation bias is a very powerful psychological weapon. For sure. I mean, like whenever I'm studying poker, I'm not looking for spots where I'm right. I'm looking for spots where I'm wrong so that I can fix myself, right? Yeah. Like like this ACR issue, right? If, if you tell me shills is a bad word to some people or a derogatory term to some people, even if it's like 5% of the people who I'm speaking to, I don't want to say that. I want to say things that don't offend people, and I'm, I'm perfectly capable of changing if I'm saying something that's out of line. Yeah. And, you know, if you're playing poker poorly, even if you've been playing poker poorly for the last 30 years, it's okay to change if you were not making the most profitable play. And, you know, that's that's what we try to teach you all to do is improve your skills and continuously get better. Absolutely. Yeah. The tough thing about getting better is you have to admit that you were wrong before. <laughs> not everyone could do that, Jonathan. Not everyone. For a lot of people, that's actually impossible. And right? That's why poker remains a very profitable game even today. Yeah, thank God. Well, obviously, you are very passionate about the game. You're obviously, you know, you've done your homework. You know what you're talking about. You know, you're one of the smartest guys we have ever had on the podcast. So I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts and uh, and your opinions with me today. Uh, before we go, why don't you tell people, are you streaming? Are you, uh, where can they find you? So I streamed a week or two ago. I'm trying to stream like basically once per month now because... I don't need to, right? Like I said, I was doing it for the fans. And also at my site, we have other coaches streaming on a regular basis sure. privately for the students. Like we had Froz Jaka recently and Draft Ganger recently um, and Matt Affleck. So we have plenty of streams going on for the students. At this point, our problem is like too much information to some extent. Um, so I'm not streaming a ton at the moment. I'm apparently getting set up on one of on a Bovada at the moment and they're taking their time. But once they get set up, I'll probably stream every once in a while. But I make loads of content on my site, pokercoaching.com. Check it out. You can get a free trial membership where you can take a look at some of the stuff there. And I have the new book, Excelling at Tough No Limit Hold'em Games. You can find that at jlpoker.com slash tough. And, uh, I mean, I learned a lot writing it. It's certainly a high-level book. It's not a basic book. If you want a basic book or a more basic book, check out Mastering Small Stakes No Limit Hold'em. And I also have a free fundamentals course at pokercoaching.com slash fundamentals. So I try to give away a lot of stuff for free because it turns out if you give a lot of stuff for free that helps people, they're going to look for you to help them more in the future. And, now, um, do you still have the Hand of the Day podcast or Hand of the Week podcast that you had years ago? Is that still going? I do. Weekly Poker Hand. You That's can find what? that in the Poker Coaching Podcast on the um, iTunes App Store and all the other – I'm sorry, the uh, podcast site, whatever that thing's called. I don't know. It's on all the all the podcasts. It's also on YouTube, youtube.com slash pokercoaching. And I actually have an app that we've been upgrading substantially in the App Store recently, the iTunes and Android App Store. And um, a big thing we added recently were GTO charts solved by Munker Solver for lots of preflop scenarios. And that's been a huge, huge value add. It's just part of being a member. So if you want, want access to all of those GTO charts so you can look at the scenario at the table before it happens and then you know put your phone down. Don't, don't use it while you're sitting in the game. But you know before the hand happens, take a look at your spot and make sure you're not screwing up. Very cool. Well, Jonathan, I uh, really appreciate you coming on and sharing all of your, your insights with us. Everybody, check out his new book, Excelling at Tough No Limit Hold'em Games, uh, on Amazon and everywhere else you buy books, and, of course, jlpoker.com. So for Jonathan Little and for everyone else here at Tournament Poker Edge, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you so much for listening. Let
rhythm, hit me, raise it, baby, stay with me. Lock in intuition, play the cards with babes to start. And after she's been hooked, I'll play the one that's on her heart.